Uh, let's start by you introducing yourself. Yeah, my, uh, my name is Ken Davis, and I've been working for a long while with Unionate Abroad, AFIDA. And for the last 20 years, I've been helping with a project uh, that... Uh, actually, our first project in 1984. Um, it's with the Palestinian Humanitarian... Women's Humanitarian Organisation. And they're based in the Palestinian refugee camps in uh, Lebanon, in particular in the camps in southern Beirut. Can you describe the work done by the Palestinian Women's Humanitarian Organisation? It's uh, an organisation established by uh, Al-Fat Mahmoud, who's a refugee. Her family came from the north of um, what's now the, you know, the coast of Israel, um, you know, in 1948. And um, she was a survivor of the massacres in the camps, uh, Saban Shatila, in uh, 1982. And so she and other women Palestinian refugees wanted to establish a, a self-help organization looking after the particular health needs in the camp, particularly people with chronic disease or elderly, people who uh, didn't have families, and uh, for young women to access education to get uh, vocational skills, and for children before school. Now, the, the purpose is uh, both early childhood education, and you need good Arabic and English and maths, or basic levels, to start in the Lebanese school system, or in the case of the Palestinians, it's the same as when you start in the United Nations Relief and Works um, schools. Uh, you need to have literacy and numeracy at the start of your schooling. So that's really important. But the other purpose is that if women can have their children in care or in early education, that enables them to work inside the camp or in the Palestinian organisations or outside the camp. And um, part of the problem is, of course, Palestinians have been there since 1948, but they're not citizens. They're forbidden to be in about 80 jobs in Lebanon that are controlled by professional associations or unions. They can't officially get uh, landlines for telephone or uh, officially get water or electricity, and they can't officially build. So they're very much excluded from the Palestinian economy, oh, sorry, the Lebanese economy. And um, so, you know, they have to find uh, many casual work, um, which in times like this is very dangerous because, um, you know, prior to the COVID pandemic and prior to this uh, explosion, uh, the Lebanese political and economic system had collapsed. And so about 85% of the Lebanese population are in... Um, are now in poverty or in uh, very difficult situations. And people that were doing jobs, like the Palestinians and all of the Syrians, that are only on a casual basis, have lost uh, income entirely. Does the work done by Union Aid Abroad in Barajel and the Shatila refugee camps, does it have Australian government approval? Uh, yes, there's been a series of projects mainly focusing on early childhood education that are, are co-funded by the Australian NGO Cooperation Program. And I think there's one other Australian agency that has um, funding for projects in, in Lebanon. 
Last year, the Australian government commissioned Deloitte's to do a thorough audit of union aid abroad. Why was that? Uh, it was an audit of um, particularly counterterrorism in our program in Gaza and the West Bank. It was occasioned on the 14th of May in 2018. A young man who had been a temporary worker for Man Development Agency, who is our partner in uh, Palestine and in Gaza. He was shot with, along with 61 other people in the Great March of Return near the inside Gaza but near the border with Israel. So he was shot by snipers from the Israeli side in a demonstration. After the demonstration, um, Israeli organisations like NGO Watch and uh, Palestine Media Watch were keen to find evidence that most of the people shot were Hamas militants, uh, whether that was like true or not. They looked at the Facebook of this uh, young man and found he was a supporter of the Popular Front for Liberation in Palestine, uh, a Marxist organisation. Uh, which is, um, you know, sanctioned under Australian law. He wasn't engaged in any illegal activity. He was in a demonstration. He wasn't, at the time, an employee of our partner organisation, and he wasn't on the payroll of uh, our program, you know, which was funded by the Australian government. You know, the investigation was to see if there was uh, any culpability or any... Um, a mistake in our counter-terrorism vetting. How much money does the Australian government give Union Aid abroad? We're a relatively small organisation. There's about 57 organisations, in terms of Australian funding, government funding, I mean. There's 57 organisations, I think, that receive funding proportional within the Australian NGO Cooperation Program. I think we get about $1.2 million dollars. But that's much funding, so that's in proportion to the amount of money that we receive from the Australian community for international development. We have a contract for uh, now for five years, uh, parallel to Oxfam and Care, for an agriculture project in uh, Gaza and the northern part of the West Bank. The total value of that would be around $6 million over five years. I had a look at the Union Aid Abroad annual report for 2019, and what I noticed was that the Australian government funding to your organisation seems to have almost halved. Why is that? It depends on the amount in the, of the allocation, which changes every year, in the Australian NGO Cooperation Program, and that's, as I said, shared with 56 other Australian NGOs that are registered. But it also depends on contracts, and so, which we compete for you know, with other NGOs. So the only contract we've got at the moment is this cooperation agreement for Gaza and West Bank for agriculture. And the funding for that was interrupted from the middle of 2018 uh, uh, until early this year. That must have put a lot of pressure on your organisation. I think we and our partner organisations in Palestine really had to full-time, some of us had to work full-time on the audit. Uh, in Palestine, or at least in West Bank and in um, in uh, Australia, and so that was uh, ourselves and the Man Development Organisation, which is an environmental and community development organisation, uh, Asala Women's uh, Business Network, and uh, Bethlehem University, the Institute for Community Partnership. So it really paralysed our work uh, for more than a year. 
Originally in this program, World Vision was a partner, and very early in the program, um, in 2016, their manager in Gaza was uh, arrested by the Israelis and accused of giving millions of dollars to Hamas, and he's still in jail. So World Vision's been out of the program really right from the start. For the reasons you've already outlined, you know, you mentioned the explosion this week in Beirut, the crippled Lebanese economy. For that and no doubt other reasons, Palestinian refugees in the camps in in Lebanon, like here, many refugees in Australia don't have a right to work. And it seems from what you said that they don't have the right to work outside of those camps because of government decree. Now, what I, what I wanted to do is to get you to try to explain to me, like looking at the effect on women, the, that Palestinian women's human, humanitarian organisation is, is trying to educate women. Um, how do they get out of that backbreaking traditional women's role where they have to virtually look after the family, to be the carer, be the... How, how can they get out into areas, you know, have a, a job, a career, or stuff like that? Yes, that's... <laughs> well, you've outlined the problem. Like, pretending that, uh, you know, the events of the last year haven't happened in terms of the collapse of the Lebanese economy or the pandemic or the explosion. Yeah, the situation is extremely difficult. So um, I think families in the camp and women in the camp... Um, like, uh, if, if they've got family elsewhere, like in another country that, you know, has regular income, that, that can help. But that's not true for most people. And um, so you, really the, the community organisations in the camp need to bridge the gap between what's provided by the United Nations Relief and Works, which is basic education and basic health. But if you, if you want, like, further education or if you need sophisticated health care, you need to go beyond what is available from the United Nations. And you, UNRWA, United Nations Relief and Works, is the agency that's established specifically for the well-being of the Palestinian refugees in the neighbouring countries. Uh, but uh, in the last period, the United States has cut funding and so the basic services from UNRWA are, are compromised. But if you wanted to get uh, further education or vocational education or better levels of health care, then you need the assistance of um, community organisations. And I think what's uh, good about Palestine Women's Humanitarian Organisation and the other organisations in the camp is, is they're organisations that they've set up themselves. So they're not, they're not getting charity from, like, overseas. Um, they're self-organising and defining their own needs. And uh, as I said, uh, initially they defined a set of primary healthcare needs that were not able to be met by um, UNRWA and that takes some of the burden of caring or, or, or gives skills to the women who are carers for uh, disabled children or um, people with chronic illness or elderly, frail elderly or, uh, or just children. The second is to collectivise or socialise uh, early childhood education. And, uh, you know, I was saying about that, that that's, you know, if you, if you want to do well when you start school, 
at five years old, you need to already be able to read and write in Arabic and English at a basic level. So that's crucially important uh, because uh, if a young Palestinian woman wants to do well in school and then finds a pathway to uh, professional training or um, vocational training, you need a lot of backup for that because it's unlikely the family is going to have money to pay for private uh, private education at a tertiary level. There's not a lot of women schools at the higher secondary level either, so that's quite dangerous. So I, I think the, the community organisations are bridging the gap between what's available from the UNRWA system and, and what's needed, like for a young woman, for example, to have a career or for a, a woman in the home to be able to manage uh, her care responsibilities. And, and indeed, a lot of the women in the camp just don't go out of the camp because the security situation is not good. Sometimes there's a lot of hostility outside the camp. Palestinians don't have political rights outside the camp. You can't just have a demonstration with Palestinian flags and, um, you know, except on particular occasions. So it's a very constrained life and people are kept in a situation of uh, dependence and that's, you know, that's the result of the NACPO in 1948 and the international community, you know, response to it. As has, you've already touched on, Beirut this week has had its own version of Hiroshima and many Lebanese are trying to leave the country. Is that option open to Palestinians in the refugee camps in Beirut? Well, the, Palest the Palestinians in the refugee camps don't have citizenship. So um, one of the demands would be for the um, state of Palestine to extend citizenship to the people in Lebanon because they don't, they don't actually have citizenship. So if they travel... They travel with, um, you know, letters, uh, let's say, possibly letters uh, for identity. And, um, you know, that creates a lot of problems. So, yeah, in general, they're excluded from options for travel. Uh, and the, the situation before, like late last year I was there and, um, and people were demonstrating essentially for democracy as well as an end to corruption and against austerity. Part of that process was that the... Uh, the Lebanese economy lost access to American dollars for a range of reasons. And then subsequently, the value of the Lebanese lira went from um, 1500 to the American dollar to, I don't know, it was 5000 now I think it might be 10000 But most things in Lebanon are serious things, like your rent or um, your wages or like big purchases needs or your phone need to be paid in American dollars and you get change in Lebanese lira. So the inability of Lebanese employers, small employers, medium employers and people in the camps to have income in American dollars meant that immediately people had a lot of trouble buying food and Lebanon had trouble importing food and fuel. Now with the COVID, Lebanon hasn't had a very good experience and you know some of my friends are having trouble getting testing or treatment in Lebanon, you know, that added an additional break on the uh, already broken economy. And then the explosion adds to that. And, of course, the grain stores and the port have been ruined, as well as a whole lot of um, physical infrastructure. So the problem will be um, in the middle of a pandemic, and I think in Bush Abrosian in nine, people have been confirmed with uh, COVID. And Bush Abrosian is 40,000 people in an area... 250 metres by 300 metres. So it's very, very densely um, populated. 
Um, it's not the sort of environment that can handle a, a contagious disease. And so already there was a lot of problems with food and with you know, protection for COVID or dealing with COVID. Now everyone's assuming that the, um, the whole country will be in danger of serious food shortages and fuel shortages. And uh, obviously, I think a large number of Lebanese want to overthrow the current system, which gives power to, you know, 18 uh, religious or ethnic elites. And usually the government's made up of a coalition of 12 parties. Um, but the question of who, who, who would get power, I think Macron's visit is interesting because it's putting back on the agenda of the expropriation of the local uh, ruling class, which is very fractured in terms of Christian, Muslim, Shia, Sunni, Druze, you know, and so on. I mean, in, I, think, I think part of the objective of the West, you know, by Israel, United States, Saudi Arabia, Emirates, and France, was to transfer power to international capital, you know, in particular Western capital and Saudi capital. But also the question for, you know, big capital is, is what is of value in Lebanon? And Lebanon's economy is not naturally strong you know, in, the, in the 21st century. So I think the outlook's very bleak. But the short-term problem is how do, how do the Syrian refugees, the Palestinian refugees, and, you know, 95% of Lebanese people, how do they get water, electricity, uh, and food? And for the 300,000 that have lost um, housing... You know, how do they access that when the port itself is destroyed? It's a very difficult situation that you've described. You know, you've virtually outlined there Lebanon's own unusual form of democracy and it's, an, it's a concession system where you have, you know, up to 12 groups that they get various ministries in the government. Corruption is, is available to them. They can... They can give the money to their own groups, whether they be Christian or Druze or whatever, Hezbollah. But yeah, that, 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 that's right. The system of government is about apportioning different parts of the wealth of Lebanon to the elites of each, uh, each community. The thing that has happened is that the rich have taken those, those US dollars offshore. They've, they've taken their capital out of the country, and it's very hard to build any kind of infrastructure. You mentioned there that the port has been destroyed. How are they going to rebuild that infrastructure without capital? So that's exactly the problem. The, the elite moves their money to Paris or Switzerland or New York or um, you know, all sorts of places. And particularly in the last period, it would be very unwise to have an American dollar account in a Lebanese bank because you're not going to be able to get that money. So people... The, yeah. the, the banks are complicit in this. They're, 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 they're orchestrating it. Yeah, it's not just that the elites has moved a lot of wealth off, out, offshore. And, of course, there's traditional linkages, you know, with the, um, the uh, Hariri family, which, you know, was um, profited from the rebuilding of Lebanon after the war, Beirut, sorry, through Soledad. You know, their linkage is, is with Saudi capital. Amal, one of the Shia parties, you know, is a... It has big uh, ownership in the south coast of Lebanon. Uh, Hezbollah is a little bit different. It's very well organised and has linkages with Iran. And, of course, the Jumblat and the Druze have got their own ownership and the different parts of the Maronites or the other Christian groups. But the problem is not simply they moved their money offshore. The problem is also um, the conflict in Syria, 
at a certain point late last year, that meant that um, the Syrian elites were required by the regime to move a lot of American cash from their banks in Beirut to the regime in Syria. So um, there's a complex set of reasons why suddenly Lebanon had no foreign exchange. And that immediately led to problems with imports of um, food, but most uh, importantly, uh, fuel. Um, and that was going on at the same time as the, um, you know, the political uprising, the revolutionary uprising of virtually the entire population. This week, uh, Union Aid Abroad confirmed that it will co-host the Big Ride for Palestine, which since uh, 2016 in the UK and since 2017 in Australia has raised money um, which has gone to some of the projects that you've mentioned, to Marn, to Hebron, children's uh, educational projects. This year, the money is going to go to the Palestinian Women's Humanitarian Fund. Where, where will that money go? What will it do? We can transfer that to the Palestinian Women's Humanitarian Organisation in, in Beirut. And they're already struggling to manage their you know, their routine programs in early childhood education during COVID because um, you, you don't want to be put in, um, in the small confines of the camp. You've got to really change how you do early childhood education, um, particularly now that there's nine cases in the in Bourgeois-Berezhna camp. Um, and then there's COVID-specific responses were needed in terms of masks and uh, sanitation. The acute problem will be not just for the Palestinians or the Syrian refugees, but for lots of Lebanese, will be food uh, and water. You know, the Palestinians in the camp purchase water and also electricity shortages. So uh, I think the, I mean, we're in a real emergency relief phase for all of Lebanon, really. And the, the biggest issue will be um, how to ensure that people have got enough food to survive. And if Syria wasn't in crisis, it wouldn't be such an issue because um, it would be easy to supply Beirut and Lebanon from, from, you know, 50 kilometres away on the Syrian border. But, um, you know, that's not the situation. So the issues are the Lebanese economic crisis and political crisis, the Syrian uh, civil war, uh, and then on top of that, um, uh, and the background issue is the exclusion of Palestinians from the Lebanon politics and society and economy. Um, and prior to that, of course, there's a bit of a climate crisis, you know, with the bushfires and stuff in Lebanon. But on top of that, you've got the pandemic and now the explosion basically knocking out the port and the grain um, storage. Thanks, uh, Ken, for giving such comprehensive answers to my questions. You know, in Australia, we've got such strong um, communities of people, you know, with families from Syria, from Palestine, from, from Lebanon. It's an incredibly big issue for Australia, and I know a lot of us are doing it tough because of the pandemic now. But I think um, this issue of solidarity with the Palestinians and uh, with the people of Syria and with the people of Lebanon at the moment is uh, it's really, really important for Australia as a whole. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I don't just mean you know, giving money or doing political solidarity, but, um, you know, so many of us have got uh, contacts affected by um, 
all of these tragedies in um, in Lebanon and in Palestine and in uh, Syria. The people must be very fearful because they've been hit so hard. What will come next? Well, I mean, I think I think Palestinians and uh, Lebanese are, are very resilient, you know, because of the history. I mean, the camps have been through massacres and uh, sieges, uh, not just by the extreme right or the Israelis, but by other groups as well. Um, and, you know, people have survived the long war in Lebanon um, and the reconstruction. Um, but just at the moment, I know, you know, people are mobilising to provide immediate food and uh, to clean up. But the number of people whose homes are badly damaged is so great. And it's not a time in the regional economy where it's going to be easy to mobilise capital for rebuilding a country that, you know, doesn't have an optimistic uh, economic future. Okay, thank you. All right, thanks a lot. <laughs> Hope that's useful. Yeah, it should be good. I'll just take...